I'm super pumped to have Detroit Bikes as a sponsor of The Beginning of the End. And let me tell you why. First, they're stunning. Simple, elegant, and tough. Just like me. And when I first rode mine, I immediately felt the quality of the craftsmanship. You know that feeling? Like when you buy something and you think to yourself, man, I own something that's really well made. Therefore, I win today. That's how I felt. And they're manufactured by skilled tradesmen and women right here in the city of Detroit in their 50,000 square foot factory. Detroit Bikes is inspired by the utilitarian ideals of European bike culture. You know, where it's not about the tight bike shorts or anything fancy. It's more about transportation and cities and getting somewhere. Fused with the manufacturing DNA of Detroit. And I'll tell you, they do downplay this, but these bikes have a ton of sexy style. And I feel a little bit cooler on my A-type Detroit bike. You need to check them out at DetroitBikes.com. Then get somewhere. Okay, on with the show. Oh, but wait a minute. One last thing. There is some adult language throughout this episode. Please be advised. Enjoy. From WDET in Detroit, this is the beginning of the end. I'm Alex Trajano. So this is our very first episode. And before we get rolling, I just want to say thank you very much for listening. It means a lot. And also, because it's our first I really feel like I should take a quick second to let you know what you're in for when you listen to our show. The beginning of the end is stories about when, how, and why things end. Like the end of a dream or the end of an era. And I'm really interested in the conversations we have with that little voice in our heads. You know, the one that keeps us up at night. The one that keeps us distracted and deep in thought as we try to figure out what the next move is. For today's show, I have a rock and roll story that has the end of a secret, the end of a marriage, and the end of a career. So there's this woman named Lorinda, and her story takes place in mid-2000 San Francisco. She's about to turn 40, been divorced for a decade, and she's what I would refer to as a reformed punk rocker. And by that, I mean she got a corporate job, but stayed cool. I like that about her. And, and you know the type. She rocked the Betty Page bangs, had the orange hair, and she was at every cool show. Well, that's all in the past. Her tats now covered by a business suit because she jumped into the mosh pit of a multi-million dollar corporation, calling the shots. And you know what? She likes it like that. And I had been single for quite some time and was pretty successful in my career. Had a nice niche for myself, a nice community. And I saw somebody at a coffee shop. I didn't really even strike up a conversation or anything. Um, But something about him kind of stuck with me for a few days. Okay, that happens. All right, and clearly she's interested in him. But remember that makeover show called What Not to Wear? I'll never forget this about this show. The hosts would always say that the biggest problems people have in fashion is that they get stuck in the era in which they thought they looked the best. I can relate to that. But to Lorinda, it might also have related to love interests. 
He looked like he had some uh, tattoos that weren't so new and shiny and bright. You could tell a couple of the tattoos looked as if he'd kind of been around the block a little bit. You know, an aged punk rocker. So she wrote a missed connection on Craigslist, which, in case you didn't know, is a type of personals ad for people who met somewhere and were attracted to each other, but for one reason or another, maybe they were too chicken, didn't make a move. So you throw out an online mating call and hope somehow they see it so you can meet up again and pick up where you left off. So to give you an example, here's an actual missed connection from Detroit. This one's called Sexy Workout Girl at Gym. It says, you were working legs and stomach with some dude. We were checking each other out. If interested, contact me and let me know it's you by saying what I was wearing. (laughs) Okay, so there's that. And I had about 15 responses from crazy people and one that appeared to be him. We emailed back and forth a couple of times, agreed to meet for coffee, and it was him. And there seemed to be a spark and um, talked for three or four hours. You know, found out about his life and and, uh, was a musician. He was in a lot of bands. He's been kicked out of many, many famous punk rock bands. (laughs) Care to name a few? (laughs) He was part of that whole L.A. scene, you know, like he's friends with all those guys, you know, like Henry Rollins and him. You know, he knows all those people. That's his tribe, that kind of late 70s, early 80s L.A. scene. So when they met, she learned that he was about seven years clean, active in his 12-step program, and he had a job working for a moving company. Okay, not so bad. He was a little rough around the edges, but wicked smart, and I like that. So we started seeing each other. Rough around the edges, but wicked smart. Perfect for Lorinda who describes herself as a tough-as-nails, bossy person who wants what she wants. And as the relationship grew, it was clear she was totally in charge. Told him which bouquet of flowers to buy on Valentine's Day, got him a serious job as an IT director at a law firm, you know, set him up with some Kenneth Cole shoes, you know, she cleaned him up. And there was a kid involved. He had a son. And, you know, they started doing normal weekend stuff and, you know, like going to the zoo or they once took a trip to Tahoe to show him the snow. And this really made Lorinda happy. I enjoyed that kind of stepping into that step-parent role. I enjoyed that a lot. And things just continued on this trajectory, and they married. A union was made. Lorinda ran the show. He was cool with that. The kid was prospering. Everything was good. It was like Sid and Nancy went yuppie or something. Then the beginning of the end began. Lorinda's dad died. I got the call in the middle of the night that my father had had a heart attack and passed away. And um, my parents were living in the Detroit metro area. And um, I flew out for services. And my then husband and his son came out the following day. While we were at the funeral, my husband took off and he left me with his son, my stepson, and um, my grieving family. And I didn't see him for two and a half days. 
Yeah, well, he, you know, finally picked up his phone and just said, I'm really sorry. He's like, I kind of screwed up. I've been down at the casino and just gambling. And, you know, I might have spent a little money that I shouldn't have, but I can't handle this. I don't know what it is about your dad dying. Just reminds me of when my pops died and da-da-da. And, um, you know, so I was like, that's fine. But can you just get back because we got a plane to catch and, you know asshole (laughs) Lorinda's dad's passing triggered something in him and things would never be the same again that trip was in August and in early December I had noticed that there was money missing from our bank account and um, some odd behavior Mostly just that he was a lot calmer than he usually was, Hmm. not so agitated. But it was very out of character. So I remember sitting in our bedroom on the end of the bed, and I looked at him and said, what is going on? Like, you need to, like, I had been trying for maybe a week or two to kind of get to this conversation, and he was kept avoiding it. And I finally just said, like, what's going on? You need to get real with me. And he said, you know, I have something to tell you, and I've really fucked up. Coming up, the secret that changed everything. Right after word from our sponsor. The Beginning of the End is proud to have Detroit Bikes as a sponsor. And their story's pretty cool. Check it out. The founder of Detroit Bikes, Zach Pashik, was a Canadian political candidate, a musician, a club owner, and a music festival entrepreneur who left it all behind to move to Detroit because he wanted to help bring manufacturing back to the Motor City. Yeah, in 2010, I was just really interested in Detroit. I'd, I'd run for office, got really interested in cities and how they work, what makes cities strong, what makes cities not so strong. And Detroit is just a, it's a compelling place, and so I wanted to see it. And I was drawn to it immediately. I found it so so interesting and the people here were so interesting and conversations people were having were just different than the types of conversations that I found I would have in, in other cities I'd visit. And these were people really trying to make a place better and, and dealing with some big challenging pieces. Um, and you know it just seemed like this was that, you know the, the only place <laughs> you know that I'd want to be is right right in the middle of that, being part of it, helping figure it out and, and learning from it. So he set up shop in Detroit. And by shop, I mean a 50,000-square-foot factory. He bought the steel, hired skilled tradesmen and women, and started manufacturing the coolest commuter-type bikes I've ever seen. So well-made, I absolutely love my A-type Detroit bike. It looks and feels so great. It kind of has this collectible quality, you know what I mean? Anyway, you got to check these bikes out at DetroitBikes.com. All right, back to the show. Welcome back. This is the beginning of the end. I'm Alex Trujano. After Lorinda's dad passed, her husband started acting strangely. Money was missing and things didn't feel right. So she cornered him, and here's what he said. I've relapsed on heroin. It happened at your dad's funeral. So when he took off, he went downtown and scored the heroin. And Lorinda says it was the absolute last thing she expected. But, you know, she's a fixer and a boss. And this was her husband. 
he asked if I would help him get clean and that, you know, he had 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 all this sobriety and he had really made something of his life and that he was really scared and if I could help him. And so I said, yes. I said, we'll see what we can do. I went about, you know, doing what I do good, taking charge, right? So taking charge of his sobriety and looking for private doctors that could, that dealt with uh, detox. And he agreed to go into a program of a a rapid detox program, hospitalization. And um, we went to, we flew to LA for him to do this at a hospital in Marina Del Rey. Just $10,000. Well, it didn't work. Neither did the next try or the next try. Lorinda described it as kind of a game, and it's kind of a common thing in stories of addiction. But, you know, basically money kept disappearing and he kept using. And finally... I said, you can't live here anymore. You need to, you need to get out of the house. So he left. He didn't take anything with him. He left. He said, you're right. And he said, I'm going to try to get into a treatment facility. You're right. So um, after he's been living out of the house for a few weeks, he contacts me and tells me that he has found a facility that's about 30 minutes away, that they have a bed for him, and he's going to check himself in. Um, He said, you can check out their website. And so I go on, I find this website, it's beautiful for this treatment facility. Um, They don't have family visits, but he'll be able to take a a day-long visit, you know, and he gave me the email address for the counselor there if I wanted to talk to anybody. Um, And so then he went into a treatment facility for 30 days. So as the 30 days were coming to a close, Lorinda decided to get a therapist for both of them so she could set some boundaries for him moving back into the home. We went in to see her his first weekend home. And she was like, are you high? She said, are you high in my office right now? Because you look like you're high on heroin. Turns out that the shrink she hired developed the outpatient drug treatment program for Kaiser, California. And before that, she had run a drug treatment center for 15 years. She made him in like 30 seconds. And he was so angry and he left. But then about a week after that... Um, I found a pair of his pants laying in the bedroom, and in the pocket was a syringe and a hotel receipt for the entire month for the Hilton in San Francisco. Wait a minute. Yes. A month at the Hilton in San Francisco. Right. Receipt. Charged to what? Your credit card? Charged to a credit card that he had. Do you know how much it was? Yeah, it was a lot of money, like you know. Thousands. Thousands, of- thousands of dollars. Yeah, like 10,000, 8,000, 10,000 dollars. It was crazy. And then I kicked him out. And this time for good. So, her house has all of his computers and servers in it. Remember, he's this IT guy. And she figures out his passwords, starts digging and finds all of this crazy stuff in there. And so, the treatment facility that he was in, it was all fake. He had set up a fake website of a fake treatment facility. The um, hotel in San, the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco hit four women working for him and he was doing, running an S&M ring. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right? Are you kidding? No. So, oh my God. <laughs> I told you. So he, he never went to treatment at all? No. 
What about the hospital? You were the there. hospital. He did the hospital. He did. Was that the last known? That treatment? was the last known treatment. Was in February at the hospital. So after that, he was just raking up credit cards. Yeah, and so remember, this is pre two thousand eight, right? So if you owned a home, guess what? They wrote you checks in the mail all the time. Like, here's a twenty thousand dollar check. Sign the back of it, and you can have a loan. He just was taking that shit to the bank. We also had the house we bought was a fixer-upper. So I had a second on the house for $90,000. He stole he took $70,000 of that. Right. Out of a joint account that I didn't know he had access I didn't even know he knew really had access to it. I filed for divorce and um, I went back to the therapist and she said, "Are you sure you're serious cuz I don't think you're serious?" She said, there are situations in life where people are truly victims. She said, this is not one. You have culpability here, and that's what we'll be talking about. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, if you think you want some help, then I really suggest you go check out some 12-step meetings this week, and you get yourself to Al-Anon, you get yourself to Codependence Anonymous, you, you know— Check out some stuff, see what's going on with you and why you would why you would allow this to happen in your life. Right? So look, here's Lorinda going through all of that, trying to fix him, fix everything, protect the kid and all of that. And somehow the tables are turned on her and now she has culpability. At the time I was doing this, I was a corporate controller for a $40 million company. You know, I was kind of kicking ass in the boardroom, right? And then coming home and being like, what the hell? You know, I found a syringe in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I was like, it's time for me to it's time for me to get real about this and to really look like, how could this happen, right? I mean, really, like, that's crazy. You really, you were running a corporation and your personal life was this big of a train wreck? Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes, true. I wanted our life to be what I wanted it to be. You know, I liked that I had married this kind of reformed bad boy, you know, punk rock turn legit, um, you know, guy with an edge. And like, I liked that. It, it suited my um, idea of myself, you know, of kind of this like badass. I don't know. We all want our lives to look and feel a certain way. And we all exhibit our own levels of denial to enable that vision to happen. But I think for Lorinda, she may have lost some of the best parts of that punk rock spirit of, you know, like, not at all giving a shit what other people think of you. Honestly, the hardest part for me, which is, um, I guess, is difficult to admit, but really the hardest part is just getting past my own embarrassment embarrassed that I'd married a junkie, embarrassed that this was my second marriage, um, embarrassed that, you know, my husband's shooting up in the bathroom and I know that that's happening and I'm going to work, um, embarrassed that I would have to um, call my family and tell them, um, but, you know, embarrassed that I would have to tell my friends it's sort of like admitting failure, and that must have been hard for your personality type. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I called my sister, who I'm the closest with, and she told my mom and uh, my brother. And Was this the first time they ever heard of any of this stuff? Like yeah, you had kept really, all yes, that until yes. that mo- 
Yes. Oh my God, that must have flipped them out. Yes, yes. <laughs> So everything worked out fine with her family, and she continued her therapy. And I asked her about how he's doing now, and she was pretty matter-of-fact about it, saying she heard he was homeless on the streets of San Francisco. And although that's tragic, Lorinda had to move forward. So when I sat down and thought, what do I really want out of life, what I really, really loved about being married was being a parent. And then I, it, it didn't even occur to me to do anything other than to adopt a child out of foster care. And so I now have a 14-year-old daughter. I packed up my six-figure job and my crazy mortgage, and um, when the housing market crashed here, I bought a house around the corner from my mom and my sister. And I do a lot of work in the community. And uh, I do a lot more artwork now. I'm way more in touch with my creative side. And I have this amazing kid, and we have a pretty fantastic life. On the beginning of the end, a couple in the middle of figuring out if they'll stay together. I spoke to them each separately, but asked them the same exact questions. And it got super real. If I'm being honest, I, I don't think that we have a shot. It could work out, but I don't know if I'd bet on it. The Beginning of the End is a production of WDET and is made by me and Shelby Jopi. Our theme song is by one of my favorite Detroit bands, Duende. You can find Duende at duendeole.com That's D-U-E-N-D-E-O-L-E dot com Also, all of the music that scored today's episode was written and performed by Fawn That's F-A-W-N whose new recording, Ultimate Oceans will be out in October on Quite Scientific Records Man, I love this band You gotta check them out at wearefawn.com and on Bandcamp I'm Alex Trujano on Twitter at A Trujano Detroit, and so is the show at B-O-T-E Podcast. Tweet us or post your comments on our Facebook page and subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. If you like us, tell someone. You can also write a review in iTunes because apparently that helps people find us and we want to be found. If you have a beginning of the end story, please send me a brief description of it. The best way is to record a voice memo on your smartphone and email it to beginningoftheend at wdet.org. A big thanks to our sponsor, Detroit Bikes, who encourage cycling by making an accessible, extremely well-made bicycle while continuing Detroit's legacy of quality manufacturing and design. Check them out at DetroitBikes.com. And special thanks from me to the following folks for support and guidance. Jen Hickson, Robert Smith, Laura Weber-Davis, Michelle Serbinovich, Joan Isabella, and Dan Riley. Go to our website, beginningoftheend.org, for photos, links, and extras. And hey, thank you so much for listening. See you next time. The End.